0: The German spargel Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD
1: title. is a pearl in the industry. I Hey, it's Ted. Welcome to Spassbremse. Michelle is still on sabbatical, so it's just me on the intro. But this time, it's not just me talking about Spagelfest or something equally frivolous for an hour. This time, we've got an excellent guest, Lauren Ballhorn, who is the founding editor of Jacobin Germany and also part of the Rosa Luxemburg-Stiftung's Brussels office. You might remember him from way back in episode 13, when he and Alex Brentler helped us break down the 2021 German federal election in September of that year, particularly the left party, Die Linke's dismal performance. There's been a lot of developments in the party since then, most notably the risk of a party split, so I wanted to get an update on that, and Lauren was the perfect guest for this. He's very committed to the cause, but also starkly honest about the party's prospects. So you're not going to get partisan propaganda here, but also not kind of centrist dismissiveness. Where, you know, where the, A lot of the more mainstream outlets just like to dismiss Die Linke as a whole, and, and we're obviously not going to do that, but we're also not going to paint a, an overly rosy picture here either. And so we get into all the details about the party and what's happened to it, and also the German political landscape in general so I won't belabor any of the details here in the intro. And towards the end of the interview, we also dive back into Berlin politics, specifically the the, the city politics, not federal politics that take place in Berlin. And in doing this, we build off of a few of the previous episodes you can go back and listen to, and also off of Lauren's excellent piece in the New Left Review Sidecar blog, which I'll link to in the show notes. And in the few days since we recorded the main interview, the, the main, the bulk of this episode, there's been a few changes. Most notably, you're, you'll hear me say that it seems like the, the Berlin government led by the CDU with the SPD and coalition is just pursuing a sort of culture war politics. Um, I would take that back now. I was referencing a ban on bike lanes and kind of silly stuff like that. But there's been some real economic teeth to the right-wing agenda of this coalition as they're imposing severe budget austerity. And it looks like that's going to have devastating effects on the district of Neukölln in particular. This is in, in the central parts of it, you know, a lot of immigrants um, and now a lot of kind of younger left-wing people moving in. Um, and so it's, you know, a really anti-CDU district, and it seems like it's just being... Being really punished uh, by this budget, specifically, some of the cuts they'll have to face, um, it will result in not cleaning the parks and the garbage very much, ending all drug addiction support, not fixing playground equipment, ending any like water features that are playground equipment. This is just a few on the list. And maybe most surprisingly. Closing the famous Christmas market in Riksdorf, which is like the bohemian, old medieval-looking place. Really beautiful Christmas market. Um, And the, the Christian Democrats imposing cuts that will result in the end of probably the most famous Christmas market in the city. So, Christian Democrats leading the war on Christmas. Who would have thought? To some of these, you know, there's been a lot of outrage online. We'll see how that manifests itself in, you know, actual politics. Um, but as far as the, the bike lane thing, there's actually been a huge demo in favor of bicycle infrastructure in Berlin. It's good to see some pushback on there. But it really seems like this government is going to use its uh, short term because the next election will still take place as regularly scheduled. So the the red, red, green got, you know, about a third of the regular term. And this this current more right wing GroKo, um, they don't have the full term, but it seems like they're going to use it to the best of their ability to pursue a right-wing agenda, which makes, of course, a viable left party even more necessary and even more important to talk about. So it's, it's a good time to share this interview and Lauren's insights. But before we cut to that, I just want to first thank everyone for listening, especially to those who support us on Patreon. We've got a great and now growing archive of episodes that's available to everyone who subscribes at any level. If you subscribe higher, you get uh, you get some, some merch. We'll send you something. But if you're not able to do a monthly contribution, which of course we totally understand, this is the first time we've said this, but it would be great if anyone who would like to support us but doesn't want to subscribe could do a one-time donation via PayPal, which I'll link to in the show notes. We want to keep paying our wonderful editor, Nick, at a reasonable rate, even though he He pursues mates rates, as the Brits would call it. Um, But we want to keep paying him reasonably. And so the more support we can get, the more episodes we can release to you. And like I said, if you don't want that recurring debit from your bank account, but would like to show a little appreciation, we would also love a one-time donation. And with that note, I don't have anything further, and we can cut to the interview with Lauren. Hey everyone and welcome to Bremse. This is Ted and we've got a very exciting return guest for everyone today. It's uh, Lauren Balhorn who's a founding editor of Jacobin Germany and also works at the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung in Brussels and commutes back and forth so I'm sure you have some uh, some nice Deutsche Bahn frustrations uh, with that lifestyle. Um, but Lauren thanks so much for coming back on.
0: Ah yeah, thanks for having me.
1: So I want this episode to be a little bit of an update of what we did um, back in 2021 after the German federal election, where we had Lauren and your colleague Alex Brentler on to do um, maybe por- post mortems—not quite the right word, but a uh, a bit of a, an autopsy on their their election disaster—to. Um, jog everyone's memory, having you know polled just under the five percent threshold at four point nine but barely making it into parliament on the three direct uh, direct mandate seats and we we talked a lot about the the problems the party faced um you know what what that means to seemingly seemingly have a, a less competitive left party in German politics and the sort of outlook for the party as well as the broader political landscape and since then. You know, we weren't we weren't terribly optimistic at the time about a turnaround. Um, and since then, it seems that things have have only gotten a bit worse. So I wanted to just go back to what we were thinking in, in 2021. You know, you described yourself as disappointed, but not surprised. What sort of made you have that pessimism before the election, when I think a lot of other people weren't quite as pessimistic? And has anything happened that would have changed that negative outlook since the September 2021 election?
0: Well, I mean, I think something uh, has definitely changed in the last few weeks, uh, namely the ultimatum delivered by uh, the party leadership to Wagenknecht that she should um, return her parliamentary mandate and step down, given that she has said publicly multiple times that she would not be running for re-election as a member of Die Linke. Um and it's uh, more or less an open secret that she or people around her are trying to uh, mobilize support within the Linke for a split and for the creation of a new party. So the fact that uh, the party leadership has now finally moved against her, so to speak, I think represents a positive change in that at least the blockade of the last few years uh, could potentially be broken. Um, I say potentially because Wagenknecht uh has refused to hand back her mandate. Um the other politicians around here or MPs around her who are almost certainly involved in the party project have also either refused to comment on the uh on the demand, so to speak, uh, or have also said that they will not return their mandates. And the Linke has essentially no party statutes that would allow them to expel Venkneck or other members. So it's very possible that the stalemate of the last three, four years will continue for at least another year or two until the next election. But at least the kind of death spiral, I'm not saying that the death spiral of the party has been halted, but this kind of uh, deer in the headlights situation that the party leadership has been stuck in for four or five years is beginning to, uh, to unravel itself. Uh, I hope so. Um, that said, I mean, that, that doesn't mean, I think mean, there's a lot of people in the party, and there's a lot of people in the liberal media, with uh, the left liberal media. I mean, I'm not talking about MSNBC, but, um, you know, newspapers like Detox, um and other publications that generally write for a left of center milieu, but nevertheless, by not necessarily a socialist milieu. Uh, and a lot of people in those milieus seem to think that by jettisoning Vine connect, the party will... Uh, be able to recover um, a lot of the ground that it's lost. Um, I'm more skeptical about that. I I think it's certainly possible. I think particularly given the shift to the right on the part of the Greens and the coalition, um, by which I mean less the question of the war, since a lot of their supporters are in fact quite enthusiastic about participation in the war, but uh, really on the asylum uh, issue, uh, I think there does open up some, Electoral potential for the green, uh, not the green. Sorry, for DeLinca to uh, uh, carve off a few percentage points from um, from the Greens. So I think something like a survival perspective is perhaps emerging. Uh, but the kind of fundamental problems of the party that we talked about two years ago, um, and that I've written about in Jacobin and other magazines, are uh, are are just as relevant as they were two years ago. There has been no movement to resolve or uh even begin to resolving any of those issues. And in many ways I think that the the United Front against Wagenknecht helps to paper over those differences and paper over those much
1: deeper problems. That's that's what I wanted to ask as well, because I think you did a great job sort of outlining the, the recent developments and some of the main the main fall lines, especially as have been in the news. And it's of course a uh, very peculiarly sort of German political crisis in a party to have this like sort of same split with Wagenknecht and it's like four or five years later. It's like, Oh, we're still talking about this. And finally there's some movement. So it's very, very slow motion. Um, But there's that. And on some level though, you know, is that kind of an, an aesthetic difference, right. Or, or sort of a, a messaging difference, because we talked about, the actual kind of core strategic divide within d And this is often described as the, the movementist wing versus people more focused on the kind of traditional uh, Eastern working class base. And to some extent, the Wagenknecht divide kind of mirrors that. I think she would like to portray herself as against the more movementist side. And she's going to be the person that reclaims the working class through a kind of mix of economic leftism and, and social conservatism. And it's not clear to me that that maps on one to one with, with the, the, some of the other divides in the party. So could you talk a bit about kind of as a recap from last time, but this idea of the the movementist strategy uh, versus the more like traditional one and maybe how that relates also with more recent movements, because we talked and our last time, our note of optimism was um, the Deutsche Wohnen & Co. and Deignin campaign haven't an, having been successful, at least on paper, having won a pretty substantial majority um, to, to approve that measure. Of course, that wasn't implemented even under a red, red, green led by uh, Francis Giffey of the SPD and certainly not going to be implemented now in the, the Berlin coalition headed by the CDU after the right. re, redo election we talked about earlier. Um, has there been any kind of reconciliation or any any outcome or is any side prevailing in that? Movementist versus working class divide and debate
0: I don't necessarily have privy to the uh, the most high-level conversations in the party but from what from what I can see from where I'm standing what you can see in the news but also as a member of the party uh, no it doesn't seem to be the case at all in fact I think um, that's really one of the most bizarre Uh, developments in, in the party, uh, that has really been accelerated or forced by the opposition to Wagenknecht is this, is a unity between, uh, sections of the party that on paper, um, you know, would maybe tell you things like capitalism cannot be reformed. We need a revolution or something to overthrow the state. Uh, the only kind of change, uh, the only, only, the only real change can come from below, Uh, You know, we don't want to we don't want to govern except for on the ruins of capitalism or whatever, that these people find themselves in an alliance with some of the most right wing parts of the party. And I don't, you know, obviously, right wing is a relative term in that sense. But, um, uh, you know, if you look at like the party's role in Thuringia, the last really the only state that the party governs. I mean, it's funny in many ways. Bodo Ramelow, the leader of uh, Turingen, is uh, kind of seen as the polar opposite of Wagenknecht, and he certainly likes to portray himself that way. But um, there's no one in the party who likes more to go down to some sausage festival in traditional clothing and uh, dance to traditional German music uh, than Bodo Ramelow. Like in many ways, kind of the social conservatism that Wagenknecht preaches in this weird, abstract way is very much uh, lived out in Thuringia by uh, what is by all accounts a uh, mildly social democratic administration led by Die Linke at best. Um, and I think, you know, I think there's a, plenty of arguments to have made that that's all that's possible in Turingia. I don't mean to um, uh, portray Bodo as a renegade or something, but there are really vast gaps uh, between uh, these different sections of the party that are all united against, against Wagenknecht. And I think what, kind of the red thread that explains or really helps to explain how the party got where it is, is the real absence of any indigenous or organic political tradition. Um, I think the PDS, the successor party of the East German socialist unity party, um, jettisoned not only kind of Marxism as a, as a guiding theoretical compass, but also uh, anything that smacked of Leninism in terms of party organizational culture. So you have a party with very loose organizational norms, um, ostensibly as a the lesson that was learned from the experience of East Germany and of Stalinism, um, uh, and also with a very loose and, and superficial theoretical foundation, also ostensibly uh, as a lesson learned from the experience of East Germany but both of those mean you have a party in which very much, very much is led and organized through informal channels and through the structures of parliament, um, which is very much in contrast to other strong uh, left parties. If you look at, for example, the Workers' Party in Belgium uh, or kind of any classical communist party uh, in the West, uh, there's always some like a primacy of politics and a primacy of the political leadership. Um, uh, doesn't mean that the parliamentary representation doesn't sometimes get out of hand, doesn't sometimes uh, end up becoming the dominant logic, but there's uh, something like a communist or a socialist discipline and uh, an awareness of the need to subordinate parliamentism uh, to the party's broader goal or broader mission, which is something that doesn't really exist in Die as a consequence of this specific historical um, uh, constellation. And if you look at if you look at the theoretical debates in the party in the 90s, they're actually much more sophisticated than they are now. Um, I, would, I would argue things have kind of degenerated more as the kind of original generation of people who were trained in East German Marxism, as limited as that Marxism may be. As they retired and stepped down, um, uh, the people that have come after them have less and less kind of contact with Marxist theory, less and less experience uh, in, in the trade union movement and the workers movement and come more and more from kind of a movement background. And I'm talking about, um, everything is diverse from the student movement of the late 2000s in Germany to Fridays for Future, um, uh, migration rights movements, uh, you know, new social movements writ large in the political science sense. Um, lots of people who share kind of left-wing socialist principles uh, would generally sign on to the idea that like capitalism isn't good, uh, but their political experience uh, is, in many ways, kind of fundamentally different from that that is generally or historically the base of a uh, of a socialist party. And given the lack of a strong organizational culture, uh, it's proven next to impossible to bring these currents together in a way that creates something genuinely new. That there are some kind of common denominators, whether it be the- the theoretical foundations, experiences that have th- that would kind of breed or form a new party culture, a uni- un- unified party culture. Um, and since that has never happened, um, I mean, the party was held together essentially by its uh, a breathtaking success during its uh, initial years in the late 2000s. Uh, and then has been held together many ways by uh, uh, the infrastructure and the money that comes from parliamentary representation. But the party in Saxony is light years away from the party in Baden-Württemberg, from the party in Berlin. Uh, These are essentially rival or competing interest groups, uh, I would say, um, that have managed to hammer out a compromise at every party Congress for the last 15 years it's it's uh, only
1: a German party with two different youth groups, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Well, uh, of the sorry, main, I know. I'm not yeah, an expert I mean, of the, of the small, I think it's, it's just a, a bit of a funny anecdote to give people an idea of what you're talking <laughs> I mean, about. The, the, the smallest group, party in, in parliament has two different I mean, youth, kind of rival youth, youth, youth
0: groups. The youth group is a great example of kind of this absence of a serious political culture. You know, I mean, the youth group. Um, I'm sure I'm going to make people upset with this, but the youth group is, in my eyes, uh, a, a real shit shitshow, um, uh, both politically, in that I simply don't agree with a lot of its politics, but from for as long as I can remember, it has largely defined itself in open opposition to its mother party, uh, refuses, for example, to openly campaign for the party uh, around elections. It will receive a big check from the party to do a youth vote campaign that will not explicitly endorse the party that's paying for it. And quite frankly, any serious political organization would have dissolved and jettisoned this youth organization uh, a decade ago, right? Um, uh, But precisely because there's a lack of a unified politically serious leadership and a organizational apparatus to really kind of fulfill its wishes. um, Yeah. That just, people just can't agree on
1: that or much else. It just becomes uh, a grab bag of people who are dissatisfied from the left with, with mainstream politics, which is, I mean, literally how the the West German half of it was formed, right? Like the electoral alternative people who split away from the SPD. So it, it sort of, well, in a way what you're saying makes sense, right? It's people who are, wanting to leave the 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 previous center lefts but without anything to kind of bind them and cohere them to to a new direction it becomes problematic. Yeah,
0: and I mean I think like like the the West German half of the party um well, realistically the West German quarter of the party um there were a lot of people in that milieu uh with decades of experience either in the West German Communist Party in the left wing of the Social Democrats in trade unions There were a lot of people came into the party from that uh, at that moment with a lot of serious experience, but most of them were already in their fifties, maybe even in their sixties, on the verge of retirement, Um, and they came into a party apparatus that was entirely controlled by the East German side, which was not interested in Marxist education, uh, not really interested in organizing. was very much a uh, a party with a parliamentary orientation, uh, and a large base in the East that I think they did not realize would die out as quickly as it did. So there was really, uh, you know, I spoke to a a comrade, a guy who passed away very recently, actually, actually, who was one of these West Germans who came into the party um, who tried to set up political education, but he said, you know, it was very difficult for us because we did not have we did not know how to operate in a large party bureaucracy the way kind of the PDS people did. And frankly, they just weren't really interested in education. They were really only interested in campaigning for votes. Um, and yeah, and that, that just has never, uh, that, 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 foundation or that, that kind of starting point never turned into something like a strong, uh, solid coherent political foundation. Um, and especially now with all the young people coming in, um, they are also coming from a thousand different directions and they don't come into the party and get handed, you know, a study guide and use the five books you need to read. And like, this is what unites us. It's just kind of a everyone for everything or everything for everyone rather. Um, and yeah, and that's why you get such a quirky, strange political culture. I mean, uh, you know, that, that viral video, uh, from the DSA a couple years ago, uh, where people were saying their uh, pronouns or whatever. Oh, of the conference, um, and it's
1: like this. The, I mean, they, that's playing this to sort of blooper to, video music yeah, over it. Yeah. yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to, um, and you know, I don't want to re- reify those stereotypes. But like uh, the delinquent conferences are the same because you just have a huge grab bag of people from all walks of life, political backgrounds, and a lot of people, like you were saying, who are maybe dissatisfied and upset. But that's all. And they don't, you know, they don't join the party and get something like an education. um, And they just kind of continue
1: to uh, bounce around. So I think that's all that's all very true. And now we're, we're probably putting people off the party a little too much. But we should also say that there hasn't been... Well, we're certainly not the first people to point that out, right? There's, And there hasn't been a, a lack of trying to sort of conjure a, a social base or or have a more kind of coherent politics. You know, like a lot of people have they're at least gestured rhetorically uh, to trying to kind of create what would be the new social base of the party. Um, and I choose that word conjure pretty deliberately because it's been tried in a few different ways there. um with obviously uh, Wagenknecht and others with the Aufstand movement a few years ago, which is sort of proto what she's maybe trying to do now with the the Splinter Party, which I'll, we'll get into more detail about that later. Um, but it was kind of a media based hashtag thing, you know. Um, in a there was a dissent piece from Quincelebodian and William Callison, and they called it pop up populism, which I yeah. liked. as uh, a nice term. And and more recently on kind of maybe the different side of the party that that I might tend to agree with more on on policy um, this is sort of you know the the overeducated uh, you know uh, delivery biker um, sort of stereotype in you know Berlin or Hamburg of the as we joked about you know there's not that many people with the master's degrees riding for gorillas but and then there's sort of this new idea that that's going to be the new base. And this we talked about this, but there's this really, really cringy quote where the apparently the, uh, the D-Link campaigners would, would come up to people and say, hello, I'm from d Are you a member of the precariat? And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like but also being like, oh, wait, those people, they're going to be our new social base. And, you know, mm-hmm. maybe the Vagentek side points to other people, say, oh, like those people who want redistribution, but also, you know, don't like gay marriage. We're like, they're going to be our people. And it's like. Rather than kind of having a having a base and, and building it a bit around that, it's like you just kind of point to someone and say maybe they can be it. And it doesn't successful political parties. It's not one or the other. Right. Like the the party helps constitute and form class consciousness. But then that class also acts through the party and directs the party like you. You need both. Yeah. You can't be totally. It's not like classes just, uh, you know, form parties organically like there's a they're mutually constitutive. Um, so I don't want to simplify it too much, but I think it is important that there have been these efforts to, like, create something and point to this new group. And it just hasn't quite materialized because, as you point out, the old base is is literally like dying. Like they show these little voter flows of like what happened based on the previous election. And when you look at Die the most recent one, um, you know, a good amount of people moved to the SPD. I think maybe rightly so. A lot of people didn't didn't want another CDU. Um Chancellorship, you know, there's some kind of strategic voters. Unfortunately, a few more people uh, move to the AFD than you want. Although that sort of like kind of horseshoe theory type thing is often overstated. Um, and then you know they show a little arrow, and it's just gestorben, <laughs> just dead, like a, like a, a non, uh, a substantial amount of people yeah, so from it was election like a, to it election, was a quarter million died. or something like that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> uh, which um, from uh, you know, I think five million people voted for us to begin with. Uh, a quarter minute, i I'm dying. That's like, you know, that's almost
1: 10% or something. <laughs> it's, it's not, yeah, it's not good. Um, yeah, people kind of say it as a joke, but like you said, it's an actual, actually large amount of people. And so. Well, when I,
0: when I, uh, when I used to work uh, in the party central, I interned in the party central, the term for it was das biologische Problem. <laughs> uh more with uh, more with reference to party membership actually than the voting base membership actually stabilized um yeah. so many people have joined the party i think a lot of them leave again um but uh, the party membership is actually much younger and much more western uh than it was uh, 15 years ago but the kind of the uh The life insurance, I believe, is what what Gregor Gysi called it. The life insurance of the party, namely the pensioner base in the east, is through biological necessity drying up. Yes.
1: Yeah. And and it leaves it in this kind of limbo, right, where you're, you're losing the traditional base. And yet it's it's not it hasn't become the student party yet, like the Greens. The Greens still have a hold on that. And and Alex right. did a great job of, of outlying some of the electoral statistics last time of saying, well, if the kind of movementist theory of the party was correct, D-Linka should have overperformed in this, that and this university town. It didn't. The Greens still clean up there. Maybe, as you said, some moves to the right on the Greens create an opening. But for now, it feels like there's still this this sort of limbo. And th- that's all the kind of background i want to i want to get into for now i think before we dive in a little bit more to like the, the recent developments and and, the, and what's going to be going on but i don't think it's yeah i don't think we can, can really talk about the new stuff without at least a bit of this background and specifically before we get deep into the wagenknecht thing i'd like to talk a bit about the ukraine war and what that has done to d and why d has been or at least seemed very incapable of capitalizing on events that you think could help them. We talked about this right after the Afghanistan withdrawal and how d had had a principled stance for decades against the war, proven correct by events. And yet somehow is so divided that they have this shambolic response and it maybe hurts them politically, even though they're the only one that. Uh-huh. clearly had the right opinion, you know, like, you know, just even even if you're not you know, principled opponent of uh, of intervention, just literal facts on the ground, prove them right. And right. Right. They, they paid a price for it. And then then later you think, oh, you know, energy crisis, inflation, uh, cost of living issues. Um, oh, well, that would be a good time for a left party to step in if you just were looking at a, at a blank slate of a country. And that hasn't proven correct either. D-Link is still kind of struggling around that five percent mark and and in the past you know you talk about the the late 2000s and they did quite well maybe that had to do with some of the energy in the new party but i think a lot of that has to do with the financial crisis and they were able to paint a pretty clear alternative and say look at this crisis look at this is negatively affecting you we have a different opinion on things And, and i think that helped the party quite a bit and yet lately they're not able seemingly to capitalize on on current events even though their platform is very you know there's a housing crisis, there's a cost of living crisis, all these, you read the bullet points of the policies and say that's very inarguable and polling shows people broadly support them. Then they don't support the party. So could you get in a little bit with how the parties responded to to both the war and the the cost of living crisis in Germany and whether you think that was adequate or or where it might have gone wrong given that mm-hmm. the party hasn't seen a big upswing in support?
0: Well, I think that Uh, I think that the war, the war specifically, uh, the war in Ukraine is not an easy, is not a home run for the left, because uh, the fact that the war was launched by Russia rather than uh, the United States or another Western country, um, certainly, uh, uh, although expected and easily explainable uh, within kind of a both realist and Marxist and all kinds of frameworks, uh, certainly makes it a bit more difficult to campaign around it than if it's the United States invading Iraq, for example, um, especially in, in a country like Germany, where you do have a certain level of kind of Soviet and Russian nostalgia uh, among uh, at least the older generations of the left. Um, uh, it, does, it does make it um, tricky. But I think, and I don't think that really any party on the left anywhere in Europe has benefited from their position um, on Ukraine because you're always going to alienate at least a little bit of your base or part of your base. Um, uh, which is why I think one of the big mistakes that, um, maybe not mistakes, but I think one thing that was really unfortunate is that the party became so engulfed in a very public debate over whether the d should support weapons shipments to Ukraine um, at a point where, there was already a majority for it in the German parliament. Um, it didn't really matter what Die Linke thought about it. Um, and it was clear that by talking about it, they would uh, alienate one part of the other of their base. So in terms of just like pure electoral tactical strategy or, or decision-making, it was a bad choice. But um, the one of many that uh, Die Linke has committed. Um, I also think it revealed kind of the... Uh, to some extent, uh, how much of the younger generation in Die Linke um, really understands politics as sloganeering um, in the sense that uh, you had a number of, uh, of uh, more or less prominent defections from the party, usually by um, uh, younger members uh, outraged over Die Linke's uh, uh, decision not to support weapons shipments um, and Written in a very bombastic hyper moralizing kind of tone, um, and even making oftentimes making kind of very bizarre claims like uh, you know, nato is is effectively anti imperialist uh, now because of the war uh, whatever that's a position we can debate it I think that's pretty much crazy, um, but the fight was really it was a it was a vicious fight over purely symbolic positions uh you can also see it in a resolution or a a motion uh, brought to the Berlin State Party Congress a couple months ago that uh all link offices uh hang Ukrainian flags uh out of their window uh or out of their office windows um also fine i guess um but again another purely symbolic uh kind of uh kind of measure um which is unfortunately what a lot of politics in our day and age is reduced to and that has affected the party just as much as it's Affected the rest of society.
1: The I fights think, are so fierce because the stakes are so low. As they, exactly, as they exactly, yeah. exactly.
0: Um, uh, particularly with uh, these young people who quit the party over the Ukraine stuff. Reading their um, reading their their uh, resignation letters, you got the impression: oh, well, these people weren't actually socialists to begin with. So uh, <laughs> uh, you know, no big loss. But otherwise, just reveals uh, the very. St- Low level of, of substance uh, in a lot of a uh, lot of the party these days, and I think on the broader question. But I, so I, I you know I'm, I'm making fun of the weapons shipments people, but um, uh, I think that uh, side uh, is just as much to blame in that um, they really sought uh, the 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 conflict. Right? I mean, you have seven Vagdalen, Vagdalen uh, who is. Uh, there's something, I don't I wouldn't say the right hand of Sarah Weink, but one of her closest allies in the party, who compared the vote to weapons shipments, uh, compared it to the Social Democrats voting for war credits in 1914. Um, I think a utterly absurd historical comparison um for a number of reasons. Uh you've had constant, you've got a number of this kind of minority of MPs, uh um simply unable to express the fact that Russia is the aggressor, right? Um, <laughs> or uh, stating that to then talk about something else, uh, but kind of you know, perfunctory admitting like, yeah, the war is bad. Russia shouldn't have done it. But, um, and I, you know, I belong to someone who I think in Germany you would call me an anti-imperialist. I do think that a large degree of the responsibility for this war ultimately lies uh, with the West and not with Russia. But at the end of the day, the fact is Russia crossed the Ukrainian border and not the other way around. Um, And this minority of MPs have have regularly sought to escalate the conflict. And I think most notably, it's a purely rhetorical move. Um, uh, It's a superficial question, but seem to be unable to express any kind of empathy with the people in Ukraine. And I think that's uh, something that is for many people in the party, disturbing and frustrating and also makes them a very easy target for the center-left and the center-right, frankly. Because um, I think that's the broader, the kind of the broader uh, issue. is. Um, uh, well, actually, take a step back. So I would say neither side really had a good response to the war because I don't think there is a good response to the war. It's a shitty situation. And no matter what you do, you're going to be contributing to an escalating military dynamic Uh, with rising danger of of, uh, nuclear exchange at some point, uh, there's really no way that this kind of position uh, can, or this kind of a situation can can benefit the left in the short term. I think in the medium to long term, that's another question. What the party, however, failed to do, and that's uh, kind of what your question was getting at, is around other questions related to the war to make any kind of uh, uh, believable, substantial, meaningful intervention
1: Absolutely. Like, I get I get why the weapons shipments issue is so thorny for the party and especially given the kind of historical ties. But, yeah, exactly. This is what I'm getting at is there is a clear left response, which is cost of living, humanitarian help for refugees and so on. And right. And, right. Know. And there are a few like,
0: uh, you know, there's few examples of the party doing good work um, in Berlin where Dilinka was in government. Kind of all the parties acknowledge that Dilinka, who is responsible for housing and social policy, did a fantastic job of housing all the refugees. Um, uh, but around crucial questions, right, like inflation, like price rises, uh, where the party does have good positions, uh, they don't manage to win any, score anything with them, or score any points. And I think that I do think that the raging public feud. Uh, Helps to, uh, to obscure those positions and uh, kind of divert the public debate away from the actual arguments that Dilinka is making. Um, it, that is definitely a major part of the problem. But it's also, I think, an issue of the way that the party communicates. Um, you know, you were what you were referring to earlier about this, like this kind of imagined base that doesn't exist that the party is trying to create, and it's somehow like an alliance between left-wing students and progressive intellectuals and white-collar workers in the cities, and then maybe like racialized factory workers, uh, you know, kind of a grab bag of like uh, identity politics categories, um, it leads to really awkward uh, communications uh, and really awkward social messaging, and political messaging. I think a great example is the party's demand that they brought out last December um, uh, around the cost of living crisis where the party called for a price break. So not even a price control, right? Like you're making utopian demands that no one is going to take seriously anyway. Why not go all the way for price controls, especially giving the whole debate uh, around price controls in the bourgeois press. But the linkist calls for a price break uh, on bread, butter, vegetables, and tofu. And, you know, I can just see the conversation that was held in the party office. Like, okay, well, what do our voters like? Uh, well, you know, bread and butter, like that's, you need that. And then obviously vegetables uh, and tofu, because we don't want to say, I don't know, we don't want to say meat because that would like offend somebody. Um, but it just feel, it oftentimes feels very forced and kind of artificial. Um, uh, as if No, no price certain- break on
1: roses though. I mean, <laughs>
0: And not, not you know, not met first, Apparently, you know, like I mean, if you're, uh, you can
1: just see the debates. Like to win the working class, we need to, we need to subsidize breakfast. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, but yes,
0: yeah, it's, it's a good example. Like if you want to speak to the average German voter, like they're not eating tofu. You can also have a price break on tofu, but I, and I don't want to harp on the tofu thing. I just think it's a great example of this kind of this kind of imagined base that the party is trying to relate to, but that doesn't necessarily really exist and is not linked to my, at least in my opinion is not linked to either like a serious socioeconomic economic analysis of like German society. Like where are the actual class divides? Um, Where are large groups of non-voters? And also, but also uh, uh, the kind of demographically in terms of polling data, like where are German voters at? Like Germany is one of very few societies in the West, um, in the Western world, and definitely in Western Europe, where still like broad majorities of of citizens like vaguely positively identify with the government and have a generally positive relationship to the state. Like this is not the case in most of the world at this point, except for the People's Republic of China. Um, And that would, you'd think, have implications for how you kind of calibrate your messaging. Like, okay, are we trying to target the 60 to 65% of people who kind of have broadly liberal values and, like, generally think things are going well in Germany? Or are we trying to target the 30%, uh, which means competing also with the far right? Um, uh, And that requires, like, some hard choices and maybe, like, a different language every once in a while and maybe prioritizing some issues over others. And those are things I think those are conversations that either aren't happening in the party leadership, or if they are, I think they're making the wrong calls because you still have like a, you have kind of like an understanding. We are the left wing of the Democratic center. Um, which sure we are, um, uh, in that sense, but in terms of affect, in terms of how you, how you pitch your message, who are you really trying to reach? And oftentimes it seems like. The party is trying to convince like their CDU voting uncle rather than the pissed off uh, heart's fear recipient down the street, Um, right? Um, Which is also a reflection of the social composition of the party membership. Most of them don't come from working class families, don't come from poor families. Their actual interaction with these sorts of people is probably fairly limited, but they've got a lot of experience arguing with like friends at university who now all vote for the Greens and that makes them think that, Oh, we need to convince green voters that we're not so wrong. Um Rather than I think seeing, maybe taking a harder look at maybe what the questions are that the average German is really upset about.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, you make the good point that there's a, we would both agree there's a lot of problems in Germany, obviously, extremely high wealth inequality, large, you know, large, low wage sector, so on, so on. We've, we've covered a lot of that on this podcast at the same time as you allude to having a left politics in a country with 3.9% unemployment is just different than one with 25. Like you just, you have to just, it's just a different thing. Um, And, and yeah, you know, actually channeling the the type of discontent that you find in Germany, which is usually like maybe someone's just getting by or things are a bit tight, but it's usually not out and out despair, like, you know, American people getting shot on the streets, like it's Germany still kind of holds itself together in a way that you know other countries yeah. seem to be falling apart at the seams, and and I think as much as it is the job of the left to point out and critique all the the faults within the country, and you know, I guess as I said, as we try to do on this podcast, you also have to be realistic and not overstate the case because otherwise you people you can come off as a bit hysterical sometimes, and and I think. I think that is is also an important task of of the left is to not is to not say something that doesn't connect with people's lived reality. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Definitely.
0: And I, and also to not be um to not be arrogant, you know? I mean, I think uh you can see with the rise of the far right in East Germany which I do think is very uh disturbing and not something to be played down. I don't think the barbarians are quite at the gates, not yet. Um, I do think there have been some hysterical overreactions on the part of uh, of, of some people on the left, uh, but it nevertheless it is a disturbing uh, uh, development. And uh, I think there's a real struggle among a lot of left liberals in Germany to see these people who are voting for the AfD as anything but barbarians. Um, and obviously, yeah, there's a lot of gross racist ideas floating around there. Uh, I don't know if you saw that, uh, that report on spiegel the other day where they went to Sonneberg, where this Landrat was just elected and people on the streets say nasty neo-Nazi kind of stuff to the camera. Sure. All that's real. I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to play any of that down. Um, but the question then for the left has to be. Can we relate to any of that anger? Is there anything we can do, or are these people all just lost? And I think that's been the response, fortunately, from a lot of kind of left liberal figures in Germany after the vote on Sunday. Is these people are all just lost? Um, you know, circle the wagons around the university towns, uh, and that's where I think Delinca struggles. Is that uh, these are the kind of places where there is real social tension. There is real need. Um, also, frankly, in a lot of, in a lot of major cities among, among immigrant populations, I don't want to sound like it's, it's white, these Germans are the only ones who are suffering, but these are some of the people in Germany who are the most alienated and in many ways materially uh, uh, the most disadvantaged. Uh, and right now, their anger is leading them to the far right. At one point, it led them to the left. And having serious conversations about how can we uh, recapture that uh, And maybe not being so scared of anger as a mobilizing affect, which uh, the German left is oftentimes very um, apprehensive about.
1: And you kind of saw parallels with this conversation in in the U.S. several years ago um, under Trump. Sort of, yeah, are these people, you know, the the sort of deplorables, the barbarians that are just don't speak to them at all. And, And anyhow, I think for the people who are just outright Nazis, like, of course, I don't I don't think the left should waste any time speaking to people like that. You know, those people are lost. But then there's obviously a group of people who are just kind of dissatisfied. And you read some interviews with people and they just say, oh, I'm worried about my pension. I'm kind of angry that I feel like I'm being looked down upon. And there's a dissatisfaction. And I don't think a dogmatic, ideological right wing politics. Some people even disavow the idea that the AFD is right wing in in interviews. Mm -hmm. And that seems like something where you can actually reach and 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 try to channel that as opposed to this left liberal stance that you point out which is almost like a like they're doing phrenology on the the East <laughs> German skull and they're like oh well they're just not conditioned to accept democracy they just uh it's not in their it's not in their blood like the you know the upstanding West Germans who, who, yeah, exactly. who know how to do right. this and I'm like okay that that just doesn't hold historically like the the they, these people used to vote more for mainstream parties. The AFD is also rising in the West. Like, clearly there is not just something deformed in the East German brain that makes them a lost cause and yeah. have to vote for the Nazis.
0: Exactly. And I think, and this applies, this is like both, this applies to both, both parts of Die Linke, is there's a, a shocking lack of, not shocking, but a frustrating lack of ambition. Like, I would say with Wagenknecht's opponents the goal is get six, seven percent by being like the politically correct uh, left, left wing of the center left, um, uh, you know woke in in quotation marks. Um, we'll be kind of like the the radical woke left. We'll get six, seven percent, we'll be uh, you know kind of like a, th- a thorn in the side of the political establishment, nudging them to the left here and there, and that's kind of it um whereas Wagenknecht and her specifically Wagenknecht, cuz i don't think that her camp is really that homogenous but Wagenknecht uh, but but Wagenknecht seems to have had a realization in the last 10 years or so that like workers aren't always automatically socialist and don't automatically have ethical positions on uh, migration and gay rights and questions like that but rather than seeing that as you know maybe like a challenge like the job of the left is uh, not to educate people in that sense, but yes, also to educate them and to try to build a majority coalition of workers, press minorities, women, all kinds of groups, right, who have an, a material interest in a different society. And that also means sometimes uh, uh, you know, clashing with parts of your constituency and challenging your constituency. Um, and she seems to, right, she, she seems to have had this realization after 20 years of being like a Stalinist intellectual who reads a lot of Hegel, and she even wrote a PhD about Hegel, uh, that when she started talking with regular people, uh, she realized that, oh, oftentimes they have some backwards ideas, and they seem to decide that uh, the most opportune way to deal with that reality is just simply to accommodate those kind of backwards positions. So uh, there's oftentimes I feel like in, the, in her approach to politics, there's also not enough tension there um, that she seems to have abandoned any kind of ambition uh, to build something like a socialist society, an inclusive society, and is willing to cater to some of the petty prejudices that you find within the working class in the interests of winning votes.
1: Um, yeah. And I think, you know, this is a, a great time now to get a little bit deeper into this issue of, you know, this potential split in the party with, like you said, you know, if I sort of, if you picture a, the political compass, she's sort of choosing a different quadrant, it seems, with the economically left and socially conservative rather than left on on both, like the, most of the rest of, of Die Linke. Um, like we said, it's kind of a slow-moving crisis. Uh, you get, sometimes I would tune out about this a bit, because we're still talking about Zara Faginke, Jesus. Um, it seems like it's really accelerated a little bit after the war started, where she's given pretty inflammatory speeches about this that, that resulted in some resignations, um, notably Fabio Damasi, who was a big financial expert in the party, left uh, right after this. It... You pointed this out last time with with migration where Vikingnet will have a policy that's pretty normal on the left in a lot of other countries but just say it so bombastically and in a very like bomb-throwing way that it comes yeah. off in a very inflammatory and sort of beyond the pale way even though you made the analogy with Bernie Sanders like you know his border policy is probably to the right of hers but everyone thinks that she's more anti-migrant and there's something similar, I think, happened here with some of these speeches. She said, you know, of course, this war is bad. Uh, You know, what are we doing? But then went on, you know, it's totally crazy. We can't sanction Russia. Why would you um why would you do this to Germany's biggest provider of energy? And, you know, I I think there's a good case to be made for for sanctioning Russia for invading its neighbor. Um, I think there's also I don't think it's a beyond the pale thing to say of, you know, well, this yeah. could make energy more expensive for German households. Maybe we should talk about. If the costs outweigh the benefits, you know, I, I think that has a place in democratic discourse in Germany, but it's how she says it in a way that just is, is very alienating and seems to be deliberately attention seeking and then causes more important members of the party to kind of split off. And, and that seems like her, her game really is a lot of it's, you know, a lot of it's very uh, rhetorical, even if the actual policies aren't totally insane. Um, So Now it seems like, you know, she's maybe done and the party is now saying there is not a she does not have a future in this party. And there's floating this idea of a splinter and this this breakaway party. Some internal polling says they could get around, according to them, around 20 percent, I think I saw in an article. What's going on with this? How credible do you think this is? And. Like you said, maybe she has a, a little bit more ambition in terms of the percentages rather than this kind of six to seven, uh, you know, kind of you know left left liberal or far left liberal approach with some of the rest of the party. Intuitively, when I hear Sarah Vagentech is going to split off and get 20 percent of the vote and take all take all. lot um, a lot of this support that's gone to the AFD back, who we should say for context, have recently been polling about 20 percent, which is mm-hmm. fairly alarmingly high. And so it's like this idea that she can come in and take a lot of this support back and actually form like what would be a 20 percent would be one of the largest parties in the German parliament. Do you find this at all credible? Um, what, what does that mean both for this potential splinter and what would be the remnant of Die Linke without her?
0: Yeah, I mean, so the, the 20% figure, I think the exact number was 19%, um, is, is credible in the sense that, yeah, there was a telephone poll conducted and uh, roughly 20% of respondents when asked, would you vote for a tsar party, said yes. But I don't think we should read too much into that because I don't know that it means very much. Uh, there's a long way from saying yes on a telephone poll, uh or survey rather, um, that you would vote for Wagenknecht and actually going to the ballot to the booth and and, and you know ca- tossing casting a ballot for Wagenknecht, Jesus, i gonna be forgetting getting my English here. Um I think it's definitely very possible uh, that Wagenknecht could pull somewhere between five and ten percent. Um for example, at the European election next year. Um, but a lot of this, uh, this, like, this notion that she could get 20% is predicated on the idea that she would peel off a lot of votes from the AFD. And I think that would be a good thing politically. You know, like I think, I think a, a constellation in which you have a Wagner party splitting the far right vote in half and bringing them over to some kind of left conservative camp um, and then d uh, occupying a more kind of traditional far left space. Uh, I think that's like better uh, than the status quo. Um, but I don't think it's very likely because I think that um, a lot of those voters who maybe would say in a survey that they would vote for Wagenknecht, at the end of the day, when the AFD is also surging, uh, they're going to stick with the original uh, or stick with, you know, stick with their brand. Um, you know, we have the AFD at 30% in polls in some states. It's not exactly a sinking ship at the moment. And I think maybe we also underestimate, you know, the AFD is a new party, but it has been around for a decade. And it seems like in a lot of these smaller towns and provincial cities in East Germany, the party's really developed a real presence and kind of a real social anchoring that will not be shattered by a fly-by-night Weimkling list. So I do think that she could get five, between 5% five and 10%. I think she'd take votes pretty evenly from most parties, except for the greens. She's not going to be taking any votes from the greens. Um, but she'll win, you know, frustrated social Democrats. She'll win. Some people vote for the AFD. She'll win. Some people vote for the CDU. I think one interesting thing about Wagenknecht is that she's widely, she's very highly regarded across the political spectrum, um, while being despised in her own party, uh, because a lot, you know, she is, she's very articulate. She's very smart. She's very put together.
1: Uh, she's almost kind of regal in her presentation. Um, we should say she's a very common presence on the German talk shows and news shows, whoa. which are, uh, I don't why. know how many listeners tune into that. But first point being that these kind of shows are very prominent in German political culture and discourse. They love their political talk yeah. shows. Number two yeah. is that Zara Wagentieck, who is, doesn't actually have a position of institutional power, at least in the party, but is there constantly. And so it's probably what most Germans she's by far the most prominent face of the left in German media.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, there's, there's in this one story in the party that's like, Oh, the media keeps inviting Wagenknecht because uh, they want to make us look bad. That's probably true of like some individual producers who have an ax to grind. But really the reason Wagenknecht's always on TV is because she's very telegenetic. She's very good at it. Um, unlike many politicians on the left, unfortunately. Uh, so, yeah, I think just through her celebrity status and kind of her ability to channel general frustration, um, uh, what direction she channels it is. Another question, I think she could easily get something like 7 8%, at least in the first time around. So, like in the European election next year, for example, if she does lead to split. I'm much more skeptical about the ability of the people around her to build something like a durable party structure. Um, you know, like it's basically the same people who did outstand, but less of them. So, uh, people like Fabio Masi wouldn't be involved. The kind of anti-forma passed away recently. Um, the few kind of left-wing social Democrats who were involved, they would certainly all not participate. So you'd really kind of have the hardcore around Wagenknecht and Die Linke trying to start a new party. And um, empirically, they don't seem to be very good at organizing things, um, which, is, which is unfortunately true for most of the party. The party has never been very good at building the party outside of parliament. It's been very good, it hasn't been very good at anything, but it's been decent at parliament. Uh, uh, and Wagner is phenomenal in Parliament as a speaker, but, you know, she doesn't even go to, like, 30% of the parliamentary sessions. Like she doesn't have – she doesn't even have a Weikreisbureau anymore. Like, these people uh, seem to think that uh, her prominence will translate into not only electoral success, but something like a mass membership. And there's, there's rumors that I've heard um, that I think are quite funny that the people around Wagenkrecht have decided that the experience of Aufstand, where they just kind of open the doors and let anyone in, has taught them that what they need is a very disciplined, tight cater party where only, like, select people are allowed to join with, like, probationary membership and stuff. Um, A concept that I personally find very sympathetic as an old-school socialist, um, but the notion that... uh, a core of a few dozen uh, parliamentarians and their employees are somehow going to build some kind of like Marxist Leninist cater party around the personality of a, a kind of a left social democratic TV show uh, figure is to me a little bit absurd. Um,
1: Typically the, the type of people that are good at going on TV shows and what they're articulation and their, as you say, regal appearance are not necessarily the same people who are diligently going to build a party infrastructure that is actually going to connect with people's lives and, and form a right, but presence. but they have
0: people maybe b- around them who can do that. And I think that's what's really missing in this equation is, you know, like I doubt that Jean-Luc Mélenchon does many like uh, organizing uh, phone banking uh, sessions, but he's got a team around him who does do that kind of thing. Jeremy Corbyn had one as well, as poorly as that project ended up ending. Uh, there was a kind of an understanding that politics is more than the spectacle and that you need to uh, sink roots in society. And I think the people around Wagner also abstractly realize that, and that's what they want to do. But given how poorly it went during Ausstehen, I have no reason to believe it would be any better this time around. It, and it kind of speaks this. to something, something that you know when we, when we talk about politics in other countries. Um, uh, there's, I think, oftentimes a tendency to project uh, your kind of hopes and dreams onto, at least as a leftist. When we're talking about other left part parties, so Corbyn was that kind of a, a plane of projection. Mélenchon can be that kind of a plane of projection. Um, and you, Because you can't really see the nuts and bolts. You can't see what's going on inside the party or in the executive. Uh, uh, whereas sometimes that's really what it comes down to. Do you have capable, experienced people uh, capable of pulling off something like this? Uh, because individual failings can make a big difference in a political project like that. And I just don't see it in the Wagner in the camp. Whether I see it in the Die camp is uh, also an open question. I think in general, in terms of personnel, the entire party uh, is really in a tight spot and, because it simply failed to build up a new generation of leaders over the last 10 years. Um, but I think it's particularly dire in the Weigmann camp.
1: That's my, my next kind of question. Um, is There's probably two schools of thought on the, the rest of the party, the non-Weigmann connect. Part of it. One is, you know, kind of good riddance. Um, Now we can sort of get those green voters that think uh, she's beyond the pale. And now, you know, finally, we're freed of this burden and we can grow. There's another school of thought. um, And basically the reason why she did stay in the party for so long is this is our most prominent and kind of popular figure by some measures. If we lose her, the rest of the party is just a rump and and will be consigned to irrelevance how do you stand on that? Like is, is d kaput if she goes and forms her own party?
0: Um, yeah, well, I mean, like I said, I think that, I think that she has a chance to get, um, something like five to 10%. I think D-Linka, I do think that there is the potential for a kind of politically co- I don't know what the right word is to describe this, but something like a politically correct ostensibly far left party, right? Uh by by picking up some some disgruntled greens here and there, I think that the could probably consolidate a base in the cities and get something like 5, 6, 7% uh and persist on that basis for at least a few more years, maybe a decade or two. Um I don't think in its current composition it will be able to recover its lost base in the east. I think the kind of cultural alienation there is simply already too deep um, too far gone. Uh, and the track record so far of the winning progressives in the cities strategy is not particularly uh, good, right? So uh, it would be an uphill battle, but Given uh, the situation we're in in Germany, where we have a unpopular government that kind of like brings together the three parties of the center, and each of them does their worst, uh, making everyone upset in their in their respective bases, I think does open up the potential for the Linke to to carve out its five, six, seven percent. But I think every election will be a battle, and I think it'll be really difficult, if not impossible for the party to uh, maintain any kind of meaningful base at the regional level outside of cities like Berlin and Bremen, Leipzig, places like that. But uh, we have an election coming up in Hessen. Um, I'm not even sure if that's the end of this year or early next year, but it's definitely coming up soon. And uh, that's the only Western state that Die Linke is still represented in parliament, unless you count Bremen and Hamburg, but the only like, proper state
1: non-city state yeah
0: right um it's going to be very difficult if not impossible for them to stay in there um and i think it'll be very difficult for them to get back into any other uh in in the next years um because on a good day the progressive urban population can maybe give you five percent at the national level but it's not going to give you enough to win uh on the regional level where you where you know cities just in general aren't uh Well, aren't as important, um, just purely in terms of electoral arithmetic. So yeah, it'll be, it'll be a precarious formation that may still uh, may survive. Uh, but I don't see the party somehow returning back to what it once was. Um, there's just too much water under that bridge.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's very, very sobering assessment, but, but yeah, I appreciate all your, all your insights on that. Um, and to, to kind of close out here, um, I'd like to zoom in on obviously a place near and dear to both our hearts and and certainly many of our listeners, uh, of course, Berlin, which used to be often the sort of rare, one of the rare bright spots in German politics where, you know, Die Linke had been part of a coalition government for a while. And, you know, I think you describe it in your uh, new left review sidecar piece, which we'll link to is it was nothing to write home about, but they did some, they did some okay things. And yeah. making some progress and that was again red red green was the coalition after the 2021 election and when there was also of course um as i mentioned earlier the Antignan, the expropriation referendum passed pretty handily and so it was like okay maybe there's some some kind of bright spots here of course as we mentioned earlier they do the election rerun and now the cdu is in charge so could you talk a little bit about these developments in Berlin and how it seems like things really went from fairly hopeful to pretty dire very quickly? Because, like I said, it was like, I think a lot of people were very hopeful about not just the actual policy of the Deutsche Wohnen und Co. and movement, but that it sort of indicated that there is this latent left majority there waiting to be tapped into and you put it well last time when we when we spoke you said well millions of people ticking something on a ballot doesn't mean millions of people will come out in the streets for it or or can be you know permanently mobilized in a kind of structured institutional way i think you said you know people will come out and protest maybe even a lot but not for that long and not that many, not, you know, not everyone who voted is going to be in the street demanding it. And that's basically exactly what happened, Uh, even though they organized this commission and the commission recently came out with a proposal or, you know, a solution saying, "Yep, totally possible. Logistically, this could happen, but of course there's not the political uh, constellation to implement this. Now, where did things seem seemingly go so wrong in Berlin so quickly now that, you know, you have a, A CDU government now just doing kind of what I would call gratuitous culture war style things, you know, eliminating bike lanes and just like just kind of ticky tacky things that are a very part of this pro car culture war. What insights do you have about Berlin and does this say anything about Politics there in the long run, or maybe even in the rest of Germany as well, or is this kind of just a weird temporary fluke that people decided to vote for the c d u for something different mm-hmm. in this silly rerun election that was you know just had to happen in the first place because of kind of civic incompetence, so it could have just been a rejection of the status quo, or is this like an actual political current we have to think about in berlin
0: um i don't know i mean that's a good question uh I think it's uh it's hard to say um I do think it was really interesting if you look at the electoral map that basically the CDU won every district outside of the ring um, with the Greens winning almost every district inside of the ring and the Linken SPD picking up one or two here and there. Um, which I think really that kind of s- seems to me is kind of maybe the new axis of division within German bourgeois politics is uh, two sections of the middle class, one of which wants a green capitalism and one of which wants a very... Brown, like in the sense of pollution, not fascism kind of capitalism. (laughs) And I do think that there is uh, some uh, deserved backlash against the Greens for the way that the party has uh, promoted the Green transition, namely is uh, not only a capitalist transition. I mean, that's that's fine. We live in a capitalist country, but uh, externalizing the cost of the transition onto regular people. Um, and even if those costs aren't as high as people might think they are, um, I think there's also oftentimes misinformation does play a role, um, uh, for example, around like the, the, the new heating law, et cetera. Nevertheless, at the end of the day, um, the greens are saying everyone's going to have to pay part of the way to, uh, you know, to transition towards a carbon free economy, And that is for a lot of people very scary. Um, I'm sure you and I both agree that it's absolutely necessary that we do all these things 10, 15 years ago and better late than never. Um, But yeah, I think for a lot of people who are just, you know, barely making it by, or even if they're, they're doing better than that. um, The idea that the government's going to tell them, okay, you've got to install this new like sustainable heating system. It's going to cost you 20,000 and we're going to, pay you back in tax credits over the next decade or whatever, uh, that upsets people. And I think that is one, one point where, um, where the CDU can really capitalize on people's fears and on the general perception of the Greens as just kind of, and it's, it's not a lie, right? Like kind of arrogant, full of themselves, dreamers, uh, professors, kids who've never worked a day in their lives. It's a really interesting interview with Klaus Dürer, a German sociologist, last week in Der Freitag. Uh, where he goes through that, like, why do working people hate the Greens so much? And a lot of it has to do with the affect. You know, it's the it's the kind of foods they eat, it's the clothes they wear, and more than anything, it's kind of the way that they push it on you that they're that they show off to let you know that they're morally superior. Uh, so I think that kind of cultural resentment, which is not entirely misplaced, if you ask me, does play a role. Uh, the issue of the car uh, is gonna. I think that that maybe will be one of the big dividing lines in German society as well over the next ten years. Who's willing to get rid of their car? And that was also, you know, the major culture war issue in that stupid election was: should the Friedrichstrasse be remain car free? You know, for those who've never been to Berlin, it's like kind of the main thoroughfare in central Berlin. Are we talked about been,
1: this with Kieran. <laughs> yeah, no, this ah, like, you did. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah. With it, it became this ridiculous thing of this one specific street where, like no one actually lives because exactly like, it's a yeah.
0: fucking horrible part of town like who cares if there are any cars there or not there's only yuppies and tourists there anyway <laughs> i can't drive and, my um, suv
1: to the lake cruise shop like yeah exactly
0: <laughs> it's a very bizarre uh but the whole debate was very bizarre but yeah i think this mobilizing of cultural resentment paired with economic anxiety uh was very effective and also is being very, is very effective for the afd right now in eastern germany so uh, yeah we're seeing a similar dynamic you know across across Europe. you promise to like keep the weirdos at bay uh, and stabilize the economy and let you keep your car. I think on in some ways that's what we saw last weekend in Greece. Uh, Spain Spain I think is a little bit more complicated, but I think after kind of a wave of left populism in the 2010s, we are kind of seeing like a stabilization and a little bit of a cultural backsliding. Um, I don't think that it means that all is lost. I think that an intelligent left, with with maybe a better calibrated message, uh, could still win a lot of these people back over. The problem, I think, for Delinca, and this is go- this was also a problem in Greece. This is a problem in Spain, and this is uh, an almost intractable intractable problem for a left in a parliamentary democracy, is when you are a coalition partner, especially in a junior coalition or the junior coalition partner rather. You uh, do not benefit from most of the most popular things the government does because those are associated with the, uh, the major party in the coalition. And you are more likely to take a blow in the election, in the next election, because your base is probably disproportionately a protest voter base. And so you've had this in Berlin. Uh, Bremen, I thought, was actually very surprising in that Die Linke essentially stayed the same. You saw this happen in Spain. I think Greece. I mean, Greece is a heartbreaking tragedy, and uh, on a whole another level. Um, but when the left ceases to be seen as a force of some kind of some kind of social protest, which doesn't mean I'm ruling out joining government, but the more that you kind of become integrated into the political center, the more you lose that ground uh, as being kind of a protest party and a party of the common people in terms of perception. And you're, it's probably going to have a negative impact on your electoral uh, results. So I think going future, in the, in the future, D-Link is going to have a huge problem because it's going to be seen as by both the Greens and the SPD as a very weak kingmaker. You know, like I think a great example is the government in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern where d went from like 20 percent to 9 uh, percent. I might be wrong, but it was some massive loss. And the SPD turns around and says, oh, well, would you like to join government with us? Uh, of course, knowing, oh, well, they won't be able to say shit because they're so weak, they're on the ground, and they're desperate to have any kind of position. And now they are a useful uh, idiot, essentially, for uh, the government uh, in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern. But you know it's going to translate, or you don't know, but uh, uh, the experience of the last 10 years shows us it's going to mean that the link is at 5% in the next election.
1: Um, right, they'll just push the SPD to do like a couple nice little social policies. Everyone will forget that D Linca pushed for that and credit the SPD with that. Or this right. seems like I mean, the repeating a, the pattern that goes on and on is the people the like the left scenario. wing policies and then Linka pushes for them and then they don't get credit.
0: Right. And that's the best case scenario. Uh there's there are also plenty of cases of D Lincoln not even pushing for left-wing policies because they're just so happy to finally be sitting at the big kids table. Um, and I think, uh, resisting that temptation, uh, which is really some, some, some basic, uh, ba- basic socialist politics, plus socialist strategy, uh, that unfortunately has been lost in some segments of the party, uh, will be vital to remain relevant over the next four or five years. Um, yeah, we'll see.
1: Yeah. I mean, I hope, uh, I always appreciate your insights on this and I hope some of the party leadership will, uh, take some of that advice to heart. I mean, I, I appreciate <laughs> someone being close to the left and also being able to speak so frankly about the problems, about um, problems within it, because like I said, you know, there there are these issues in Germany and these problems we want solved and it's tough when the only real alternative is this organization we both find so so deeply dysfunctional and I now have this kind of conflicted emotional relationship. You're like, I want something good to happen, but why are you so incompetent? <laughs> <laughs> So we can see if uh, we can see if d linka can find any space for itself in between the um, the new dividing line in German politics, which looks to be SUVs versus cargo bikes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> E-cargo e bikes. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: That's the that's the cutting edge.
1: Yeah. I mean, what are you going to what are you going to drive to go get your subsidized tofu? That's the
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's what it'll all come down to. So, yeah, thanks again for coming on. And we will, of course, link to some of the great pieces that you've both written and translated on this topic. And where can people find your work?
0: Uh, At Jacobin, mostly. Um, If you speak German, you can check out the German language Jacobin, Jacobin, D-E. And otherwise, uh, I write for Jacobin, the American, the, the big Jacobin, often enough.
1: Great. We'll link to that and yeah, encourage everyone to subscribe to the the German Jacobin, which is really its own its own publication, and it still has the nice the, the nice page feel and the, the nice graphics. But it's not just direct translations of what appears in the American right. one. It, it's its own kind of team exactly. and own topics. It's, yeah.
0: it's its own its own separate editorial board. We translate a lot from Jacobin, but we're our own publication, and uh, we are upgrading to glossy paper next issue. So for those of you who have not gotten a subscription yet uh sign up now to experience the the new glossy jacobin probably next week 2 3 weeks sometime very soon
1: well that maybe maybe that can help salvage the left is a little <laughs> little bit shinier shinier feel on the socialist magazine so thanks so much lauren for coming on really appreciate it anytime thanks ted cheers thank